So I am notoriously bad at using chopsticks. <laughs> and well, I did not ask for a fork, and I should have. Well, it's a good thing we're not on camera. No, it's a very good thing we're not on camera. We did not end up spilling noodles all over Supervisor Dean Preston's desk. And by we, she means me. And the soup he chose, pho from Miss Saigon, was well-received. While he was spicing up his soup with jalapenos, we were asking questions on hot-button topics. Housing, the budget, and political gridlock at City Hall. I'm Laura Wenis. And I'm Cynthia Lopez. This is SF Next Fixing Our City. And today marks our last consecutive soup with the soups. The real question here is how heavy on the jalapenos to go. Oh, yes. You gotta do jalapenos. But if I start sweating profusely, <laughs> you'll know what's going on. It's, for me, it's my nose just runs. Not very professional, but you know what? It tastes good, so... Dean Preston was elected to the District 5 seat in 2019. He was running to fill out the rest of former supervisor London Breed's term after she was elected mayor. The new mayor had appointed her legislative aide, Valley Brown, to the seat, and Preston scored a very narrow win over Brown. In 2020, he was re-elected for a full term. Since then, District 5 has changed dramatically through the process of redistricting, which happens every 10 years. It didn't include the Tenderloin or Civic Center before. Now it does. It still has the Western Edition, Panhandle, part of Japantown, and Alamo Square. San Francisco is often referred to as Shades of Blue because it has a Democratic supermajority. But Preston is a Democratic Socialist, the first one to serve on the board in 40 years. He worked as a tenant rights attorney for about two decades before he was elected. And his office was recently working on an idea for some on-the-ground meeting and greeting of constituents that sounded kind of familiar. Yeah, we're, we're convinced the Chronicle's bugging our office after this experience because the day before at a staff meeting, we were talking about, as we often do, about different things that we can do in the district. So we, you know, office hours, we've started doing these neighborhood walks where we reach out. We were talking about maybe doing a, a you know, a chili cook-off thing, just different activities. And one of the teams suggested that we have soup and we could call it soup with your soup and it was a mix of of you know folks thinking maybe that was kind of goofy and something like oh it's not a bad idea oh yeah and then we oh, got for the your, record it's goofy then we got your email the next day and it <laughs> blew our minds <laughs> i'll be honest the three of us talked a lot about soup like for a long time so we're gonna skip ahead a bit the first thing laura asked preston about was political gridlock at city hall why doesn't the public seem more compromised Preston says there's actually way more harmony than fighting. Sometimes the stuff that bubbles up more into public view is where there are disputes. But if you look, most of the things that the board does are unanimous, you know, and folks actually are, are on the same page on a lot of issues. That was a surprise to me when I was a new supervisor. I mean, mm. I came in here, no experience, you know, in city government at all. I'm a democratic socialist. I'm coming out of this board. I assume I'm going to be like the lone vote on everything or that they're all going to be all these divided votes. And what Although statistically, I think you are more so than others. It's not like you never vote with other people, but I think that's sort of one of the clear distinctions between, say, you um, or like that you and, and Catherine Stephanie share is that you're more often voting alone than other members I of the board. Th I think that's right, but it's still pretty rare. I mean, when you look at most of what supervisors do and we spend our time on, like we end up working 
pretty closely together or having support from our colleagues. And I find on most things that I try to move forward, they're, you know, these are things that either pass unanimously or where even when they don't, where we have, where it doesn't always fall along the sort of progressive to more conservative with how the votes are. Well, is that just reflective of like what we don't see behind the scenes? Is it much more practical and like handshaky behind the scenes and <laughs> less like, well, I disagree with you and let me talk for three minutes about why? I mean, I think it's more the policies. There are policies where there are real disagreements, right? But then there's a lot of things where there aren't, right? So, you know, there may be affordable housing issues, something like that, that may be more divided. But then if there's a resolution around trying to get the federal government to do more on gun violence in America, right? Yeah, sure. You see, and you see everyone coming together, right? Yeah. And so, so it's a mix. You know, if you look at any given week's agenda, right, there are some things that are going to be more controversial. But there's a lot of, of things that aren't, right, that come before the board where we're acting in an oversight function. Right. We're there to approve, you know, and accept and expend on a grant or, you know, any given agenda has like 50 things on it. My point is just that supervisors end up working together, whether they're sitting on a committee or they're trying to get support for each other's stuff. Like we end up all working together more than I think the, the outside world sees. I mean, you try to persuade people, right, of your position. And the reality for me is that like we're a values-based office, I would say, more than a transactional office, right? So there are different ways of being, you know, in political office and, and moving your ideas, right? And sometimes it's by finding that middle path of least resistance where you can sort of like get the votes you need together yeah. and negotiate. My approach is, has generally been to, you know, if it's something I believe in, to try to like stick with it in its in its purest form doesn't mean you don't make compromises along the way and then that is going to trigger sometimes a vote that is more divided i did want to ask about police funding because that is one thing where i think you differ from the rest of the board and where you voted differently i think that you voted against a budget because it actually increased police funding tell me about that yes i voted against the budget last year and the year before and both years there was a big increase. I mean, last year's increase was $50 million increase to the police budget. And there's certainly, there's a number of reasons for that. I, I mean, one is I take seriously where I think this country was in 2020 after uh, murder of George Floyd and, and really getting serious about alternatives to policing and reducing the footprint of police departments. And I, there, there was far more of a consensus around that in 2020 than, than I had seen in my lifetime. And, you know, there has been a reaction to that, right? Nationally, what some have characterized like a white lash, whatever term you want to use for why so many folks and particularly white folks have moved from an openness to alternatives to police to wanting or calling for more, more policing. So I think that a lot of that has been driven really by sort of a nonstop fear mongering to convince people that what they need is more police without really looking at whether more policing actually makes people more safe and whether it is a good use of money. I think there's also been very little effort to adjust the police budgets down 
to account for the fact that we are investing in other things, right? So we have street teams, we have others that are doing what we used to turn to police for. Now we're turning to others. That should result in a corresponding decrease in the police budget. All that said, right, the easiest thing to do when you have constituents who are concerned about crime in American society is just to promise more policing, whether it helps or not, because that's what gets you through your next media interview. It's what gets you through your next community meeting. You just promise more and more policing. People want it. People want to see more officers. I mean, people, people want to, to feel safer and to be safer. And they get a steady stream all day, every day, including some of it from the police department communications team, every day telling them that the only way to obtain that is through more and more police. We have to look at like, what do we want police doing in our society? What don't we do? And what are they actually doing out there? And I will tell you from my constituents, some of this is so academic. Like people call the police right now. They got a $50 million increase last year. I had a constituent the other week call me with a burglar in their garage. Five hours later, a police officer came. I have a business in my district, a cannabis dispensary, where the police responded to the scene, were parked across the street, and watched the entire robbery occur. So like, more money doesn't fix some of these things. And I think we need to hold police more accountable in the budgeting process. And I think that to myself and my colleagues and others, we need to look at what is this spending actually doing, right? We are so over budget. We give them a $50 million increase and they're now tens of millions of dollars over budget for overtime. There is not an honest conversation about the huge amounts of money that we waste in San Francisco on a police budget that just grows and grows and grows with no accountability. Everything from investing in new police horses to millions and millions of dollars of overtime to have someone standing outside the Apple store. We need to find that spine, I think, and we need to be honest about whether all that spending, now over $700 million a year, actually makes anyone safer. I mean, and it, it is not just horses and motorcycles. Right. I mean, that mounted unit, they, they're $2,000 boots for each officer. Wow, it, you've it, sure spent some time yeah, looking at the police budget, haven't we you? We have every year, and we try to bring these things into the budget mm -hmm. committee and talk about the incredible waste. And I'm not talking 1000 bucks here, 1000 bucks there. I'm talking I could easily, easily cut 50 to $100 million out of the police budget, and no one in this city would even notice in except terms the cops. of except yeah, sure except and the horses <laughs> and the horses Preston emphasized that what people want is to feel safe and that this can be accomplished with alternatives to policing one twitter user wanted us to ask him does preston think residents are really willing to engage in those alternatives well i think if we're you know it depends what issues we're talking about if we're talking about you know violence i mean our current setup is that, you know, if there's a violent crime occurring, right, people call 911 and police are dispatched, right? And I don't think anyone's envisioning that that someone is going to be, you know, arming themselves and going out and dealing with that. But for well, some people definitely do envision that. <laughs> maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But I look, I think generally there's a lot of functions that can be provided outside of, of law enforcement and make people safer, right? So, you know, there's an impact. We've been, I've been 
a big proponent of some of the ambassador programs, right? Mm-hmm. Like we brought community ambassadors through the OSEA program, which is, you know, Office of Civic Engagement and Immigrant Affairs. Mm-hmm. They have a great ambassador program. So one of the functions people often look to the police for is like a deterrence function, right? It's it's that someone sees the police officer walking down the street patrols, and, and yeah. others may be less likely to commit crime. Mm-hmm. And, and some of that really can be replaced, if not most of it, with non-police alternatives that are much cheaper Right. Mm-hmm. And and much less triggering. And, and one thing I want to point out that often gets ignored in these conversations is, you know, for every person out there who is comforted by seeing more police, there's also a person who's made to feel less safe and more uneasy by seeing police. And it falls along race and class lines. And I believe sometimes that the assumption that everyone just welcomes and wants more police in their community is very much speaking to communities that are whiter and more well-off. And I, and I hear much more diversity of views on that when I talk to folks, African-American folks in the Fillmore, folks of, of color in the Tenderloin. I mean, there's a diversity of views within any community, but there are a lot of folks that don't necessarily want more police. They do want to feel safer in their community. And that's why you see the success of a lot of ambassador programs, things like Safe Passage is another example, right? In the Tenderloin, kids coming to and from school. You don't have a line of police officers there, right? You have a line of, of folks working with the Tenderloin CBD, working with community groups and making folks feel safer. I asked him to respond to another thing we hear a lot from listeners, readers, and social media followers. They want to know his stance on safe consumption sites. I'm I'm 100% supportive of overdose prevention sites, safe consumption sites, wellness hubs, as the, the mayor and DPH are now calling them. And you'd put um, one in your district. I would put multiple ones in my district, and I'd be happy to engage with any community members that had, that had concerns about that. And, and I should say, the only site like that that we've had in San Francisco is the Tenderloin Center, which was in my district. And when the mayor wanted to close it without a replacement, we I did a resolution at the board that passed saying there should be a replacement or it should stay open until there, there is a replacement. So th- there's just no question that we should have these sites. I, you know, And after the redistricting that happened last year, when the Tenderloin became part of my district, so there are overdoses citywide, but I think we know, I mean, over 20% of the overdoses are folks residing in the Tenderloin. After a break, we'll get into the topic that Preston has the most notorious opinions on, housing. Before we go, a reminder that we want to hear from you. We'd like you to have a voice in this podcast, too. Do you have a solution that you want the city to pursue? Or do you know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send a voice memo or write an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. Laura and I have been talking with District 5 Supervisor Dean Preston. He was a tenant advocate for decades before being elected to office. He scored a narrow victory over Mayor London Breed's appointee, her former aide, Valley Brown. One of his top priorities is affordable housing. Advocates for building more of all types of housing often clash with him over this, saying he blocks market rate housing. Preston disputes that, saying he doesn't spend much of his time working against, or for, market rate housing. But he does say that the market will not deliver the low- and middle-income housing that we need. He has proposed legislation that would allow affordable housing developers to sue the city if it fails to meet its low-income housing goals. And these are goals that the city has failed to meet consistently for many years. 
Well, the city meets when it comes to market rate housing. It right. exceeds when it comes to yeah. market rate housing. So we, in this last eight-year cycle, we achieved 150% of the market rate housing goals mm -hmm. and barely 50% of the affordable housing goals. Yikes. And then that was when we had goals that were, I think it was 16,000 was our goal for affordable mm -hmm. housing. Now we have tripled that goal. Mm -hmm. Right, so we're now in the next eight-year cycle. We're saying we're going to do forty-six thousand units of affordable housing. So we're certainly on track to fail, right? And, to, and to, <laughs> I to, love it. Yeah. To your point, I mean, it's just anyone seriously looking at this, it's not going to be like a few bucks more over here, or or a you know this rezoning or whatever magic wand some people think we have to create housing. Like, like none of that is going to get us to 46,000 affordable housing units when we couldn't even get 50% of 16,000 in the last cycle, right? Uh -huh. so, that, so that's the reality. Preston says there is actually money available for the city to buy or build affordable housing. Some of it is coming in through a transfer tax on high-value properties from a few years ago, Proposition I. You'll hear that referenced a few times. But Preston also says it's been like pulling teeth to get notices of funding availability out the door. Those would start the process of nonprofits signing up to launch projects. So part of what we've been doing is sounding the alarm a little bit, like, you know, hearing after hearing that, that we've held saying, what is the plan, right? How do you reach these affordable housing goals? And clearly you don't get there by doing what we've been doing. So some folks would have you believe we get there by just building a lot of market rate housing and then... Because you know, it magic. will have affordable housing components and, right. and or it will pay for affordable housing down the line. Or I think what some who are less grounded in reality think is you're going to build so much market rate housing that somehow the prices are just going to plummet. It's the trickle-down sort of model that I don't subscribe to. Talk so. more about why you don't subscribe to that because at least three different people asked us, like, why don't you think this is true? I think market rate housing you know, delivers housing for people who have a lot of money in San Francisco. And they're the center of the conversation. And everyone just wants to talk about how much we should build for mostly folks with a lot of money or big real estate investors. To me, it's an entirely different conversation than affordable housing. So 93% of San Francisco workers, according to the Housing Our Workers report, these are union workers, cannot and will not be able to afford market rate housing. Now. Now. So there are some people that believe if you just build enough market rate housing, all the prices will fall and somehow, eventually, your teacher, janitor, bus driver, retail worker is going to be able to afford market rate housing. Well, if that, we dumped 82,000 units in San Francisco right now, you don't think that that would no. affect prices? I, I, I'm not saying it wouldn't affect prices. I'm okay. saying it would not make any of that housing affordable to 80% of San Francisco, right? It might reduce the rental price of a new unit from you know $4,000 to $3,730 or something like that. Who can afford it, right? Mm. So they're two separate conversations. My focus has been on housing for low-income and working-class people. And I do not believe that market-rate housing in a city like San Francisco is ever going to be affordable 
to the folks I'm talking about. Now, in my work, that's my priority. So then let's talk about something that I like totally derailed us from, which is your effort to hold the city to account for its failure, likely failure, let's say, I want to be pessimistic, to reach its affordable housing goals, especially now that they've tripled. Well, let's hope we don't fail. I mean, when I when I say okay. that we're we're <laughs> headed to failure, it's yeah. it's if we don't change course. I just think it's going to require a really fundamental shift and some collaboration. I mean, the, we we need this administration and the mayor to get beyond some of these political differences and actually work with us. The fact that we have to fight every year for Prop I money to go to affordable housing, that's just kind of embarrassing. And and we could change course on that and start to, to work all of us more collaboratively to reach those goals. And I hope we do. The reason we announced and we'll soon be introducing the ordinance around accountability is I think something outside City Hall, most likely affordable housing advocates, are going to need to have the power to hold the city accountable. Otherwise, we're not going to see us reach those goals. Well, what can be done to not have to fight every year? The board's been pretty strong. I mean, we unanimously did a resolution to to the saying that the Prop I funds should be used for affordable housing. Yeah, the board and the mayor are at odds. The board and the mayor are absolutely at odds. And and I can't speak for why the mayor is doing what she's doing. I can just tell you that we there is so much money that the board has allocated for affordable housing that the mayor will not spend on affordable housing. We have deals that are falling through left and right that we could be acquiring. So we have a, unfortunately, an administration and a mayor that has so politicized the issue of affordable housing on issues where we should agree that we're just not moving forward. And it's frustrating everyone. It's frustrating nonprofit housing developers, it's frustrating the board, and it, it doesn't need to be like this, but you know, you'd have to ask the mayor why she won't spend affordable housing money that the board's allocated. Is it possible to just walk down the hall and and knock on the door of her office and be like, hey, let's talk about this? I mean, we've requested meetings, you know, repeatedly on different issues. The mayor used to meet with board members monthly. I'm informed that she stopped that practice when uh, her favorite supervisor was not in the District 5 office. And I think I've had a total of probably two meetings with the mayor since I, I took office. I would like to do a lightning round at the end. These are okay. the same questions for everybody. One of them is if you were just like totally ultra empowered king of the city for a day, could do anything, what would you do? For, for a day? Well, hopefully it would last beyond the day. That would be nice, yeah. I, I would wave my magic wand and have a, a Vienna-style social housing program with mm-hmm. you know tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of uh, of affordable social housing across the city. Um, that, that, that'd be probably my, my, my top thing. Lots of others. That would be a fun exercise, but I, I would hate to see it all vanish at the end of that 24 hours. So hopefully we can build something more I, sustainable. Yeah. I imagine it stays like you only have one day to do stuff, but like it, the effects stick around. I don't know. Yeah. Anything else you want to mention? <laughs> I mean, lots. I, you know, I do free public transit and I have it running every few minutes mm-hmm. so that folks can have to actually get around this town. I'd, I'd probably do some Barcelona style super blocks so that you, you'd actually see that even if just for a day, you can make Vision Zero a, a reality and have car free streets and spaces for folks to, to be out there and not 
you know, risk getting run over. I would have a network of the wellness hubs and and actually see whether it was for a day, a week, a month, whatever, show that the sky wouldn't fall if we actually treated drug addiction as a public health issue. We've been doing a lot of work around a public bank. And oh, yeah. that one I don't think is going to take the magic wand or king for the day, as you say, but, but uh, we're going to get there. But I certainly would love to see that not take years, but be able to do that immediately. God, it would be so nice if all these things didn't take years, but that's not the right, reality right. that we live in. We yeah. do not have magic wands. Can you like give an example of an idea or policy from somebody that you politically disagree with that you think was great, actually? I think I probably would point to an issue we've been discussing around the wellness hubs and safe consumption. It's not necessarily someone else's idea, but I do think it's one where folks with whom I disagree on a lot of stuff are on the same page on this. And that includes the mayor. I mean, when the mayor was supervisor, she was, she was a big advocate for safe injection, safe, you know, safe consumption. And now we see folks, someone like Supervisor Dorsey, who, who I see some of these issues very differently from, you know, we're both working really closely with Supervisor Ronan around that. So I think that's an area where where a number of us probably see eye to eye that who might otherwise disagree on a lot. What keeps you up at night? Uh, what keeps me up at night is violence issues in the district. And some of that's figurative and some of it's literal. We, yeah. we get... I get notified and have told all the police captains, fire chief, others, you know, any time of day or night, let me know what's what's happened. So for major events, for shootings, stabbings, fires, in the prior version of District 5 that I was elected to, there were a number of shootings in the Fillmore, and that was certainly what was and continues to, to keep me up at night. But the addition of the Tenderloin it's so much more regular. I, w- I will get notified by first responders of, you know, shootings, stabbings, fires, that kind of thing, you know, as many times in, in, in a handful of days as I used to be notified in a month in, in, with the rest of the district. And that's just an everyday reality in the Tenderloin. Wow. Supervisor, thank you. Sure, thanks again for the suit. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. To get in touch, send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. This was the last soup with the soups for a while. In the next few weeks, we're going to be digging into topics like downtown doom loops and overdose deaths. But soup with the soups will return. We have invitations out to every member of the board, and we hope to talk with all 11. I'm Cynthia Lopez. And I'm Laura Wenis. Coming up on SF Next Fixing Our City, a group of New York economists have sounded the alarm about the potential for an urban doom loop. The work-from-home era could have serious repercussions for the whole city, not just downtown. We'll hear how next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, 
exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext.